Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And this is the Word of God. May He add His blessing to the reading and preaching of it. Let us look to Him in prayer. Great Holy Spirit, You who have authored this Word through holy men of old, specifically in our case, the Apostle and our brother Paul, we thank You that we have not simply here a record of rights and wrongs, but we have, as it were, a living sword which is able to pierce into the very essence of who we are into our hearts and separate very very much able to, Lord, cleave off sin which so tenaciously clings to us. Would you please, Holy Spirit, do your great work in us today that Christ might be praised for His kindness, that we might abide in Him, and that all praise would be given to the Father in heaven. For we ask it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your glory and for the joy of your people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Brian Chapel is a professor at PCA Seminary, and actually he's president of a PCA Seminary, written a book on holiness by grace and tells in the book this true story. A teenage boy has allowed himself to be given over to rebellion against his parents. For four years, he has continued either to angrily protest his innocence for behavior which he has done that everyone knows he has done and which everyone knows is obviously unacceptable, or when cornered, he's promised to straighten up this time. So much pain and discouragement has been inflicted on the parents that the wife has confided to her pastor, Dr. Chapel, that she does not know if she even loves her own son anymore. Her heart has grown hard against her own child because of the greatness of his rebellion. One day, another rebellious escapade has been revealed. The son immediately goes into his little song and dance speech about how innocent he is and then summarizes it with his promise to be better. <laughs> but the mother has had enough. She throws up her hands and just walks out of the room, refusing even to listen to him anymore. But in that lonely few minutes where the son had sitting in the living room by himself, what I think people call nowadays God moments, I don't think that word is in the Bible, but it's descriptive, isn't it? He looks down and there is a family photo album. He opens it up and begins to flip through it and notices there pictures of a much happier time, 
time when he loved his family and his family loved him and they enjoyed life together. And God does something, and this was this is a true story. This is a family in the church, and obviously he knew good theology. But it all comes to roost, and God does something in his heart, and he calls his mother back in, and he points to one of the pictures in the photo album and says, Mom, when I see this picture, I understand why you don't think you can love me anymore. Hope fills your eyes in this picture, and I have dashed all your hopes. And then these three words, will, that's four words, will you forgive me? And with those words, her mother's hardness and lack of love for her son dissolves, and she embraces him with a renewed love. A mom's heart is not moved by the claims of innocence from her son, nor by his promises to do better. It's moved by a statement of dependence. An admission of desperate need. And though sometimes I think I often disbelieve it, God's grace and mercy are not moved by my promises to do better. They're not moved by my protestations that I have not really been as bad as other people that I know. God's promises, God's grace is moved by a cry for mercy. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me, Psalm 50, verse 15 says. I had a friend in Arkansas who liked to repeat this phrase, Need is the key to the kingdom. Need is the key to, a king, to the kingdom. And another wise pastor said it this way, All we need is need. Oh, but how few have such as that. I tell you that story, and I want to begin there this morning, not simply because of the text which is before us, but the whole series. I want to begin there, lest we forget the heart attitude that must be ours in order to come to texts that challenge us to spiritual growth and change. We must come to these teachings, to this text, with a heart that knows it is in need of grace. Not a heart that is intent on finally straightening up enough so that it can get God's blessing. We are studying, dear loved ones, the fruit of another's work. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Not the fruit of a healthy self-esteem. Not the fruit of a holy, sanctified life, and certainly not the fruit of harsh self-criticism and asceticism. We are studying, we are seeking, not the fruit of our own hands, but the fruit of God's Spirit. We're trying to find out how God works in our lives, not how we work our lives so as to get God. And that's an important distinction. I find, I don't know if you find this, I find that when I consider a topic like this, there are many dangers to my soul. One of the first dangers I face right off the bat is to be driven to despair. When I read a text like Galatians 5, 16 to 25, I am tempted to say, I give up. Woe is me. What hope have I? I have failed again. There is no chance for me. But you know what? If we think about that a little bit more, is that not pride in my own sinfulness? Am I not really saying that I am so bad the arm of the Lord is too short to save? And lest 
despair be the only temptation or the only cliff on which my ship can crash, then I flop over to the other side and say, you know what, now that I think about it, I'm pretty much better than the rest of the people I know. The temptation to pride in my own goodness, my own innocence, is right there with me. But then, if I survive those two rocks, lo and behold, in the middle of the stream, there is the temptation to promise God that this time I will be better. Last week, yes, I failed, but this week I will do better. And of course, you see the problem in all of those, whether it's pride in my own sinfulness or pride in my own innocence or pride in my own performance. The subject of every sentence is I. (laughs) I have failed. I will do better. I'm not really that bad. Brothers and sisters, I need you to pray for me and I want to remind you that God opposes, opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. These texts are not meant to drive you to despair nor to self-improvement. They are meant to drive us to God. Let us come to Christ instead of seeking to please God on our own because He has already pleased the Father. Let us own, as it were, our own inability and let us seek in Christ what we lack because He is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. If we have that heart and attitude, then we can begin to do what we want to do today, what I hope for us to do today, which is lay some foundational truths to guide us through the rest of our study in the fruit of the Spirit. And as I often do, have three points, three things that I want for us I want God to accomplish in our lives today. I want us to enter into the conflict. I mean, I want us to enter into the command. I want us to engage in the conflict. And I want us to experience the conquest. Enter the command, engage in the conflict, and experience the conquest. And the first thing to notice on your outline, item one, is that those who belong to Christ must enter into the command. And the command is, walk in the Spirit. Now, in three verses in this text, Paul gives us four different words to describe for us what it means or what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. You need to get all four of them because if you take one of them and separate it from the others, you're going to get a distorted view of living the Christian life. So it's all four of them God has given to us to fill out an image for us of walking in the Spirit. The first is right there in verse 16. It is the only one of the four that is an imperative, a command. Here is the command. Paul says in verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit. Now that is a figure of speech. He's not actually telling you to walk in the Spirit like it's some kind of ghost there. But you know the figure of speech because we have the same one in English that they do in Greek. You know what it means. What do we mean if we say that a young man is walking in his father's footsteps? We don't mean that, you know, little Johnny is out there and everywhere Bob walks, Johnny takes a step. I mean, he may do that when he's young, right? Your kids probably did that. But that's not what we're talking about. What do we mean when we say the young man is walking in his father's footsteps? What do we mean? This is class participation time. (laughs) Nobody knows what we mean. Oh, come on. What? Okay, he's taking the same road. as another. That's a figure of speech too. We don't really mean he's taking the same road. We mean he's living a life, right? Living a life like his dad. He looks like his dad. He's doing the same kinds of things his dad did. We have the, the figure of speech, the fruit does not fall far from the tree. Usually in a bad connotation. My... My kids have illustrated this figure of speech for me. One time when Daniel was about four, we had a really big snow, and Daniel wanted to go out and play in the snow, so I put him in those little bib overalls, which you know are too big, and carried him out there and plopped him in the snow. And and the snow kind of came up and grabbed him in his crotch and his bottom and just held his feet right off the ground. And he just sat there and spinning, right? 
Instead, what I had to do is I had to go out and mash down places where he could walk where the snow was already trodden. That's what the figure of speech here is saying. When, you walk, when we walk in the steps which the Spirit has already pressed down for us, we can enjoy playing in God's kingdom. Isn't that what it says? There's no law against love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Go and do them all you want. Have fun walking where the Spirit has trod. I took, took my kids another day to play in a soccer, play soccer uh, out at a soccer field. This time, Rebecca, uh, Rebecca was about four years old. And when we went to the soccer field, we parked the car, and then we had to cross a little muddy space in order to get to the actual place where we played. And as we went, uh, Rebecca had, I think, new tennis shoes on, and I showed her that if you kind of carefully walked where the little tufts of grass were, you could actually avoid most of the mud. And So we got over and we played soccer. And then as we finished, the, there was a playground with swing sets and slides beside the soccer field. And I told the kids they could play over there for a few minutes before we went back for dinner. And in Rebecca's excitement, she took off running. Well, as you can imagine, she learned the proverb, look before you leap, because she leaped right into the middle of the mud puddle and just splattered everywhere. You can imagine, four-year-old girl covered with mud. Uh, she was very upset about that. But you know what? The consequences of Rebecca's little mud bath weren't very big, were they? But are some of us splashing around in the mud of sin because we are unwilling to walk as the Spirit would have us? Could it be that some of us are failing to enjoy the life God has laid out before us because we refuse to play where the Spirit has already mashed down the ground? Walk in the Spirit. Now look at verse 18. Here's the second aspect of the picture. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The, word, the Greek word for led there is also used in the Bible of leading an animal. So that in Acts when it says the sheep was led to the slaughter. It's the exact same Greek word. So the, the word picture that should come to your mind is the Holy Spirit has a rope around your neck. And He's not jerking you around, but He's leading you down the way that you ought to go. So that's a word picture. Then the third one is down in verse 25 in the first half. If we live in the Spirit, this phrase is telling you that every thought, every action, every impulse and behavior of my life is to be the same as if the Spirit were the Spirit animating this flesh and bone. So that it is a Spirit-filled person who is living this life. And then finally, verse 25b, the New King James translates it, let us also walk in the Spirit. But that's probably not best since the word walk is different from the word walk up in verse 16. A better Greek translation of the Greek word here would be this, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I believe the New International Version actually translates it that way. The picture, it's a military picture and it's, it's exactly what what you would say to an army soldier when you're telling him you have to march with the rest of the guys. Or if you, for those of you who were in a marching band, you know, while the rest of the band is marching like this, you're not allowed to be just flopping around and not get your feet in the same thing, right? You're supposed to march with the band. That's what God is telling you. He's asking you this. Are we marching with God's Spirit? Those are the illustrations. When you get all four of those together, you begin to see the picture of what it means to learn to walk again, this time to walk in the Spirit. Now, how do we do that? How do we do it? How are we led like sheep by the Spirit? How do we step where He has packed down the way? How do we march to the Spirit's drummer? Let me give you some specifics. First of all, we walk in the Spirit by obeying the Word. We walk in the Spirit by obeying the Word. Though it might be more popular to kind of suppose this is some kind of mystical mumbo-jumbo. The, the truth is that the Holy Spirit has written the Bible. So if you want to know where the ground is mashed down, if you want to know what it looks like to be led by the Spirit, if you want to know what it means to, 
have the Spirit animating your very body, as it were. If you want to know what it means to be able to march in step with the Spirit of God, we must study God's Word. To obey the Bible is to walk in the Spirit. So, I mean, obviously, you could, you could, we could give some simple examples of what we would not do. You cannot walk in the Spirit and enslave or abuse or detest people of other races. You cannot walk in the Spirit and murder children. You cannot walk in the Spirit and promote or practice gambling. You cannot walk in the Spirit and blaspheme God or curse men. We cannot walk in the Spirit and dishonor our parents or demean our spouse. So to walk in the Spirit means at the very minimum that we obey the Bible, right? That's pretty simple, but that's not enough, is it? Because the Bible does not define obedience by mere outward conformity. We already read Romans 6 earlier in the service. God commends us for obeying from the heart. So what does that mean? Well, let's give a Mother's Day illustration, kids. It means when mom tells you to clean your room, you do not go off and sigh and shrug your shoulders and slam the door and stomp and swear in your heart that this is unfair. Because if you do, you have not yet obeyed, even if you clean the room. Because you have not obeyed from the heart. Can we... Can we love on you a little bit here? Can we go a little deeper even than that? Can we get specific? Why is it that we sometimes huff and puff and complain? Why is it when someone asks us to do something, we, we like to complain even while we are doing what they asked externally? Why is it when Helen asked me to do whatever it was this week, that I like to give my little, fine, fine, I'll do it. I've had a hard week, but that's okay. Where does that speech come from? Does it not come from a heart that wants credit for what we have done? In fact, it wants more credit. It's not enough that I've done it, but I want everyone to know how much I suffered in order to do it. (laughs) See, the more we can feel put upon when we obey, the greater our degree of self-righteousness. Isn't that why we complain about obeying? Whether it's to our mother or to our wife or to our God, we hope that by complaining we can feel better about ourselves. Let me give you an example or some examples of the opposite so you can begin to see what it might look like to not do this. You know, each of us obviously knows that on Sunday, or most of you know that on Sunday the Kaisers host us for dinner and we we all greatly appreciate that. That's a a wonderful opportunity for fellowship in the church and it's a highlight of, of the week. And Because Kathy does so much work for us, I try to remember every Sunday to go and to thank her and to say, Kathy, you've done so much. It's just fantastic. I can't believe all of this. And I think that's the right thing to do. I'm not saying you should, should, uh, you know, just go up and punch her in the nose or something. Don't do that. You should be gracious and, and, and grateful, right? But isn't that an opportunity if Kathy's not careful? to be something that could make her feel self-righteous. It's as if I'm offering her a heavy burden of self-righteousness that if she does not handle that compliment correctly, if she holds out her hands and says to herself, you know, that's right, I I have worked hard. Gosh, these people ought to be more appreciative. Gosh, you know, God ought to make everything go well in our lives now because of that. And next thing you know, Kathy's all weighed down with the burden of self-righteousness. But you know what Kathy does every week? I don't know if she always, if you ever struggle with this in your heart, but what she does every week is she does this. It's my pleasure. It's my joy. See what she does? She lets it go. See, the reward is in the obeying 
She's not expecting a reward for her obedience. Do you see the difference? I saw another one Thursday night. Bear and I went over to the Fuyan's house. We were getting some... Um, Mike had some code numbers that get us a discount on our phone service. I'm probably not supposed to say that. Erase that part of the tape. We got over there and Sherea was working on a project for her little preschool kids in the, in the teaching program she's involved with. If I had gone to Sherea and said, Oh, you're suffering so mightily having to cut out these little pictures of whatever it was, you know, colored doothickies. You're just suffering so mightily. It's just so terrible. Sherea could have, could have said, Oh, you know, you're right. Gosh, I, I am suffering. I hate this. I have a bad attitude. That's not what she did. She, she, she said, I enjoy this. Now, she might want extra pay for filling out the report cards or whatever other things she has to do. But on Thursday night, it was a joy to do the work for the kids. Jeff Kreutz has taught me this several times. I have tried my best to compliment him and to thank him for all of the work that he does to make the music for us. And every time I've said something, do you know what he said to me? He said, I try to hand him the burden, and he says, you know what's so great? I get to worship God three times every week, and you guys don't. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. Do you see it? The reward is in the obedience. And so how do we apply this to you? Or how do I apply it to you? Let me ask you, how do you respond to the privilege of worship? From the time when our kids were born, we studiously avoided ever saying, we have to go to church. Now, I'm sure we slipped at times, but our goal was to always say to our kids, we get to go to church. Now obviously... I mean, Obviously, the words are not enough. If they say the words and yet hate the worship, well, that's worthless. I'm not saying that the words themselves are right. I'm not saying that the words make themselves righteous. But I am saying this, the words are a window into your heart, if you will let them be. And by saying we get to go to worship, I'm reminding myself of what God is offering me. In church. Listen, let me say it this way. Are you bitter because God has not rewarded you for your participation in worship? Or are you delighting in the reward which is worship? See the difference? We can apply this to our marriage, we can apply it to prayer, we can apply it to every aspect of our lives. I tell you, the truth, I've been a Christian for almost 20 years and I feel like I'm just in a little bit of a way beginning to understand parts of this truth. But, but here it is, the commandments of God are not burdensome. Now, I've always known that. But why are they not burdensome? They're not burdensome because in the doing of them, they contain their own reward. Not if I do the commandments of God, simply they are not burdensome because... One day later, I will get a reward. But in the doing of it, there is great reward. Do you know the joy that comes from receiving the reward of obedience rather than demanding a reward for your obedience? Do you know the difference? Please meditate on that. Do you know the joy which comes from receiving the reward of obedience. The obedience is the reward, rather than demanding a reward for your obedience. Well, we could go on for that another couple of days. Let's press on, though. We walk in the Spirit not only by obeying the Word, but by living in humility. This is going to shock some of you and may get me kicked out of the church, but I have to tell you that though the Holy Spirit is a humble spirit, Glenn's spirit is a prideful spirit. And because of that, I must die to self. I must die to self in my rebellion. I must die to self in my righteousness. 
in my rights, and in my relationships. Down the line, my spirit is saying, I want to rebel and it must die. I want to puff, be puffed up with self-righteousness, that must die. I want to claim my rights, they must die. I want to demand relationships my way, they must die. Friends, we even have to die to self. Listen, you're not going to believe this. In defining how you want to feel. Look at the quote from Andres something. Does anybody know how to pronounce that name? She's an author. She's an editorialist in World Magazine. Anybody want to guess for me? I, I'm not exactly sure how she would pronounce her last name. Andre. We'll call her Andre. You have the quote on your, out, on your handout. Listen to this. She's talking about the problem of depression. And she gives a very unorthodox answer if you define orthodoxy by the prevalent ideas of today. Listen to what she says. Mind your goals. If being rid of melancholy is your non-negotiable supplication, soul-searching is in order to see if you have not substituted your own set of virtues for God's. What God highly prizes is prayer, faith, and endurance. To practice these, and here it is, to practice these is not just the means to the better Christian life, it is the better Christian life. Have you fixated on success, worldly approval, and independence from the need of daily grace, and made the disciplines of godliness mere stepping stones to them? The happy discovery is that even when depressed, you can be controlled by the Spirit and not the depression. See, that's what, that's what I was talking about earlier about Saruman. You will be controlled by something. You can have a moment-by-moment -moment dependency on the lover of your soul. You can say, I am depressed, so what? And carry on with the energy God supplies. The condition is just what is common to man. The prescription is still faith, and the grace for it is inexhaustible. Do you hear what our sister Andre is telling us? She is noting, and I tell you, oh, I have heard this so often as a pastor. Not simply because you have said it, but I say it to myself. How do I get Jesus to make my depression better? How do I get this Jesus to make my marriage better? How do I get God to change my husband? What do I have to do to get the Lord to make my boyfriend into the kind of man that I really want to marry? Do you not ask those questions? I do. And here's the biblical answer. It's tough. I mean, it, it, you, you gotta, you, you, do you love me enough to let me tell you this? Here it is. You don't. You, you're barking up the wrong God. Right? You got a God that you control, you know, the kind you put in the little bottle and you rub the thing and he comes out and says, what do you want? Oh, want you to change my husband? <laughs> Great, I'll do it. Hallelujah. But that's not the God of the Bible. The Bible says this. And, and you know, when I tell people that, invariably they're sad. And you should be sad. Why? Because your idol is being ground up and put into the water and now we're going to drink it down and we're going to say, you have to die being in control. You have to die to self. And instead, what God offers you is something better. So that He can say to you, you do not have to get a God who will make your marriage better, but I will make you better. And your marriage can even go bad around you. And you can still live a life pleasing to the Lord. Well, as you can see, that requires great humility to die to self at every opportunity. Does anybody say amen to that one? We could look at third, to walk in the Spirit is to live a Christ-centered life. To walk in the Spirit means to glorify God in all things. Both of those I had hoped at one day to flesh out. But uh, let's stop there on that aspect and let you meditate on those on your own. And look at the second part. Part one is this. Those who belong to Christ must enter into the command. But second, I want you to see that those who belong to Christ must engage in the conflict. 
You have to engage in the conflict. And the conflict, of course, is the flesh versus the spirit. Look at verses 16 and 17. I say to you, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Verse 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you have made any kind of serious effort to follow the Lord, you know that it is a spiritual struggle. It is not an easy thing. In, in uh, John, uh, John Bunyan's great book, Pilgrim's Progress, there is a scene where a pilgrim is walking trying to get to heaven. And this is after he has fallen into the slough of despond. How many of you have read that book? Okay, most of you have. So you, you know it. He's walk, you've gotten... Uh, I love the way uh, my kids... One of my kids' favorite line in that whole book is, I see you are grievously bedaubed with the dirt of the slab despond. My kids just grievously bedaubed. How ridiculous. But anyway, he's grievously bedaubed. And he meets worldly wise man. Worldly wise man is an ungodly man, one who cares more about the things of the world than he does of the things of the Bible. And then, here, listen to what worldly wise man says. I think, is this quote on your outline? There Okay. Listen to what he says. He says, this is what it's like to walk with God. There is not a more dangerous and troublesome way in the world than is that unto which he has directed you. You have met some of the danger already, I perceive. For I see the dirt of the slough of despond is upon you. But that slough is only the beginning of the sorrows attending those that go on in the way. Hear me, I am older than you. You will meet... In the way in which you go, wearisomeness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and, in a word, death and whatnot. And whatnot. <laughs> Whether we're reading that as a family or listening to it on the audio tapes, we pause there. And say to the kids, kids, is worldly wise man telling the truth or is he lying to the Christian? And of course, the first few times, the kids were like, oh, he's lying. You know, everything goes better with Jesus and Coke. And it was just a real shock to them to say, you know what? Worldly wise man has told the truth, hasn't he? The Bible says he's told the truth. You see, American Christianity, I'm aware of this. I know American Christianity promises people that if you will pray the prayer, Jesus will make it all better. But listen to Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, but narrow is the gate and... Does anybody know what the next word? Difficult. Difficult is the way which leads to life, and few find it. Or this quote from Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not... This is a good one for Mother's Day. Hate his mother. Must be a typo. Should have read it out of the Bible. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you would come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. If any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And then this in Matthew 10. I have come to make everybody happy. (laughs) Isn't that what you'd like it to say? I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. So whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. 
Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Man, the way of Christ is hard. Are you entering into the conflict today? Are you entering into the conflict? John Bunyan, the same one who wrote the story earlier we read of worldly wise men, wrote to his congregation. Well, here's a guy. (laughs) What did John Bunyan do? He preached the gospel faithfully in a time when the when the country was growing apostate more and more by the moment. So what did, what did the government do to faithful John Bunyan? Did they say, wow, preaching the gospel, isn't that neat? Anybody know what they did for John Bunyan? Threw him in jail. Sat there 12 years while his children grew up without him. And he wrote this to his congregation. Here's a man who's entering the struggle. This is a great encouragement to me because it tells me that my struggles are not unique. This is what it's like. Look at what he writes to his own church. He says, If I tell you the difficulty of praying to God as I ought, it is enough to make you entertain strange thoughts of me. For my heart, when I go to pray, is so loath to go to God. And when I am praying, it is so loath to stay with Him that many times I am forced in my prayers to beg of God that He would take my heart and set it on Himself in Christ. Do you know that godliness is first and foremost struggling for godliness? It's not always victory, but it is entering the conflict that we are called to do in this text. And then third, we've seen we must Enter in the command, we must engage in the conflict. But then I want us to leave here encouraged today because there is promised that those who belong to Christ will experience the victory. The Spirit's victory. Not ours, but the victory of the Spirit. Again, verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We're going to take up that theme next week and spend the whole week, Lord willing, if anybody bothers to come back after such a difficult passage Thinking about what it means to mortify the flesh. Scott Polsky earlier asked me, <laughs> and he told me he was a little surprised that I was preaching on such a happy thing as the fruit of the Spirit. I said, oh, brother, we're going to camp out on mortification for a while. <laughs> so what is this victory? Well, let me tell you three things it's not. It's not sinlessness. It is not sinlessness. Back about five or six years ago when we had a radio show Pastor Kaiser and I, I got a, an email from somebody who said that Calvin, John Calvin was wrong because, um, and, and the guy knew that because he could point to some specific sins that John Calvin committed, and we all knew that a true Christian was sinless. It's like, wow, what a strange letter to give. But apparently people think that. So let me just remind you not to grow discouraged over the continued sin in your life. Allow that remaining indwelling sin to be for you a constant cause to look to heaven. Yes, now today you can be freed from the penalty of sin and justification. You can, as you grow in faith, be freed from some of the power of sin in sanctification. But the presence of sin will not flee from you until you reach the glorified state in heaven. So let every bit of indwelling sin be to you a call to worship and to say, even now, come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm looking forward to heaven. Then second, it's not beating the body. It is not sinlessness. It is not beating the body. Throughout church history, many have hoped to control the desires of the flesh by hitting themselves or crawling up stairwells on their knees. If you've not seen the the movie, the new movie put out by the Lutheran Church on the life of Martin Luther, that stunning scene where he goes to buy an indulgence in Rome and all of the people are crawling up uh, St. Peter's Basilica on their knees. It is, it is a powerful scene and it, it speaks to us because we wish that we could do something. We wish that if I could just do something and get rid of this sin. But it is a work of the Spirit, isn't it? And Colossians 2.22 says, those kinds of methods in the end have no power against the indulgence of the flesh. So it's not sinlessness, it's not beating the body, and it's not mere 
external conformity, which I've already covered. So what then is it? And let me give you simply this morning three implications. The first implication is the necessity of conversion. If those who belong to Jesus do have victory over indwelling sin, it tells us two things. It tells us, one, there are many people who are not converted, who claim to be Christians but do not yet know the power of the gospel. But then it cries out to each of us to make sure we are converted. Do you know something of Christ's victory in your life over your sinful passions and desires? Friends, I am not asking you if you would say today that you are a Christian. Quite honestly, I don't care if you would profess the faith. I'm asking, does Christ have a hold of your soul? Is He doing work in your life? Is there fruit of the crucifixion of the flesh? Not perfection, but are you seeing growth? If not, come to Him. Saruman's of the church, (laughs) come down off the tower and know the mercy of Jesus. He stands ready to save and He stands ready to sanctify. Come to Him. And then second, and that leads us right to it, the necessity of Christ. You have to be converted. It's a spirit's work in your soul. But to continue on in this process, you have to have the work of Jesus in your life. You're not going to get there by screwing up the courage and promising to do better. I'm not asking you if you're good. I'm asking you if you are Christ. If not, come to Him today. This is not about being like Avis and trying harder but it's about coming to Jesus for Him to sanctify you. And then third implication is this, the necessity of progress. As we grow older, we all learn to cover our sins better. When my son uh, was really small, we had one day we, we were out doing some yard work and uh, we all got hot and sweaty, so I went in the store and bought two Gatorades that my kids were five and three, and they just love those Gatorades, you know, with the little sport bottle thing that cost, I don't know, $100 for a little bottle of water flavored. I mean, it's a crazy system, but it just works because they go in there and their eyes just get big. Whoa, look at that bottle with the twisty top. So anyway, they just had to, so they were in the car. I just ran in and got them a Gatorade. And I get there, and of course, there are 4,216 flavors. And I'm like, oh my word, what flavor am I supposed to get? So I just reach in and grabbed a lemon, lime, and a cherry. So I came out to the car and I said, I got one of each. Surely we can make happiness here. Now, of course, yeah, yeah. all of you were saying, how could you be so dumb? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I told you I wasn't sanctified yet. I should have gotten the, two of the same kind because then we couldn't have a fight. So what did we do? We had a fight. Well, then we decided Rebecca had actually been sick. So we said, okay, Rebecca, this was Helen's uh, uh, advice. Rebecca should get, let Rebecca choose. Well, she chose lemon lime, which left Daniel with the cherry. So you got a little five-year-old kid. We've been outside working. We have, we're in the car. We have sweat pouring off our bodies. He's in the car seat. You know, where there's no breeze allowed because they wrap all the way around your body. I said, here, Daniel, here's the cherry. Nope. I said, That's what you... I'm not drinking that. <laughs> so we drove 20 minutes home. Then we got out in the yard, and we worked in the yard another three or four hours, and he refused to drink it. Just, man, can't you just, that spirit and that flesh are just going at it. So after a while, I came over to him, put my arm around him, and said, man, you're a moron. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) I said, you know, Daniel, Jesus loves you, and He really doesn't want you to be sitting here so hot. And and he began to cry. He knew then, even at five years old, that it was all his rebellion. And I prayed for him, and he drank the whole thing in like a minute. (laughs) Because he was thirsty. had another example of this uh, back in January at the church where I was preaching. I saw a little girl come in. She was nine. And she came in, and you could just tell from the moment she came in, she was angry. She had her arms crossed like this. And she was mad. And she sat there through the whole church service and then through the whole sermon and just angry. I mean, just fuming. And when, we, we, when the service was over, one of the men came up to me and 
said we were chatting. He said, yeah, my daughter is really angry today. <laughs> yeah, I know that. And then, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't her father. It was her uncle. And he said, my, our, my niece over there is really angry. I said, yeah, I noticed that. And then the niece comes up, nine-year-old, and says, walks up to He's evil. I said, whoa. Wow, what caused that? He would not... He, no, he went to the back of the room and got for her a copy of the children's sermon notes. She wanted to do it on her own. I'm like, oh my word. You, know, you really want to go down that path? So then I said, well, you know, the good news is you get to love your enemies. You're going to love your uncle and apologize to him right now. Buddy, she turned around, stormed out of there, never looked back. You know, it's that battle. That battle's going on. It's between the flesh and the spirit. Now look, when you're young, that's, the, that's what the good news about being a parent for you who are teens and early 20s and thinking about getting married. The good news is that when they're two and three and four, their sin just sticks out like a big old sore thumb, right? But as we get older, it's easier to cover it up. So when today when I say that one of the implications of this text is the necessity of progress, I'm not asking you if you're better at covering it up than you were when you were five. Goodness, I hope you are. <laughs> I'm asking you if you're growing in Christ-likeness. And if not, again, don't despair. The answer is the same whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or, quite honestly, if you've been pretending for 20 years and God is telling you today you need to be converted. Humble yourself and ask Him. And He will save. There's a story told of a young artist. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story. He was unhappy. Maybe some of you young kids know what it's like to be an artist and yet the paintings that you paint are not quite as good as you would like. Maybe some of you older kids know that also. So the uh, young, young artist, he was about 15, he wanted to be a great artist. So one day he, he snuck into the master's paint studio and went over and stole something. You know what he stole? He stole the master's paintbrush. And then he went back and he painted a really bad picture. <laughs> because... The paintbrush wasn't what he needed, was it? <laughs> he didn't need the master's brush. He needed the master's spirit. You need the law. You've got to have good paintbrushes. Even the master has good paintbrushes. He doesn't paint with, you know, rolls of duct tape. Michelangelo didn't get one of these and use it to paint. He used good brushes. And so you need the teaching of what is the fruit of the spirit. But in order to paint with it, you need the Spirit. So will you come down and come to Him today? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this incredible teaching and promise of Your Word in Galatians 5. Will You please do a great work in our hearts today so that we would not despair, we would not protest our innocence, and we would not promise to be good, but we would live like we believe we would come to Jesus and say, will you not have your way with me? Lord, more of you we would know. More of your grace in our lives, more of your saving fullness, more of your love. Let us know you today, Lord. Let us have your spirit. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.